You're listening to the Christian Single Moms Podcast. This is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly, founder of Agape Moms, and I'm excited that you could join me for this conversation today. Here on the podcast, we emphasize discovering you on the journey through. And what that means to me is I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose. And I believe that she can do it right through the things that God is carrying her through in her season as a single mom. I am so thrilled for this conversation today. I have Christy McClelland joining me here on the podcast. I have come to just adore Christy's teaching and approach to the Bible. Number one, because she teaches from a Middle Eastern lens, so she helps us to understand the Bible in its original context. But number two, because she has such a beautifully simplistic way of explaining things that it's just though of power and impact. I was introduced to Christy actually a couple of years ago, right in the midst of my divorce process. And at that time, I was extremely hungry for the word and just wanted to know what God really said, who he really said I was, what he really had to say about my circumstances. And I found that I felt so held back by all these wrong thoughts I had about what the Bible said. And so as I was digging and studying and reading, I was sent one of Christie's messages as it related to the relationship between Adam and Eve in the garden and the creation of woman. And it gave me such a beautiful picture of how God created woman and her beautifully unique role in relationship to men, but also to creation. And it just helped me to see myself rightly. And I find that so much healing can come from seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. And so Christy and I are going to dive into that today. And we're going to dive into some other topics that you may have actually also received some incorrect teaching about. We're going to talk about things like headship and submission. We're going to talk about things like divorce and give a biblical context for these topics that maybe you've not ever heard before. Wrong beliefs about ourselves are acquired over time. And as time goes on, we may adapt to these beliefs and create patterns of thinking or behaving that in the long run then actually inhibit our relationships and cause us to experience deep and long-term loneliness. And so what I've done over at agapemoms.com forward slash quiz is created a quiz called What's Your Loneliness Type? And when you take that quiz, and it'll take just a couple of minutes, you'll have the ability to identify maybe some of those patterns that are keeping you in these long-term cycles of loneliness and then get some suggestions about ways that you might be able to get out of that. So if you'd like to start on that quiz today, that's at agapemom.com forward slash quiz. I'd like to tell you about Christy McClelland. After studying in Israel and Egypt in 2007 and discovering that God is better than she ever knew, Christy has been teaching the Bible through a Middle Eastern lens in its historical, geographical, cultural, and linguistic context. Christy encourages believers to be postured to receive what God is saying, which is best done 
communally through experiencing scripture together. Christy teaches about the goodness of God experienced through table fellowship, practicing hospitality, and collaborative wisdom. Christy is a professor at Williamson College and serves as a biblical culturalist. She has a master's in Christian education from Dallas Theological Seminary and has dedicated her life to teaching people how to study the Bible. I walked away from this conversation feeling so encouraged and enlightened, and I pray that you will experience the same thing too. Here's my conversation with Christy McClelland. Christy, I am so thrilled that you're here. You're in studio today. So fun to have you. Man, thank you for having me. Yeah, and I'm so excited for this conversation because I feel like so many times as we're walking through struggles in life and specifically things relating to divorce or just feeling like we are not fitting right in the church, that a lot of times we may have a wrong understanding about what God actually says about that circumstance. And so it causes us a little bit of extra discomfort and shame. So I want to know if before we launch in, you describe yourself as a biblical culturalist. And if you would tell us a little bit more about what that really means. Yeah, so I've had the privilege of teaching Bible in the Biblical Studies Department at Williamson College. I'm starting my 16th year there, and my specialty in biblical teaching is to serve the church, both in the West and around the world, as a biblical culturalist. And what a culturalist does is we teach the Bible through its original historical, cultural, geographic, linguistic context. We function like a bridge. We're going to take you not only over to the biblical world of the Bible, but we're going to take you culturally into that space. Mm -hmm. What was their worldview? Mm -hmm. How did they see God? How did they see one another? And it adds to our understanding of what the biblical authors meant by what they wrote and all of these stories that we read in the Bible, what was really going on in their day, in their time, in their culture, and in their world. And I find that so helpful because very often I think we approach the Bible from our understanding from where we're at right now. And there is some application that can happen there, but for us to get all the nuance and really what the power and the magnitude of what was being conveyed, where that all lies is in understanding where this was written from. And some of, for me foundationally, some of the teaching that you have given, especially as it relates to women and what Jesus was really saying and in these interactions has just been so transformational to know what was the world like at the time that he walked the earth. So to kind of get us started in understanding this, one of the things that has been so foundational for me is understanding how to see myself as God sees me and kind of rewriting a lot of wrong thoughts that I've had just even from childhood. And and many of us kind of wrestle with those things, but basically getting this sense of what does God think about women? What does God think about her role as it relates to men or as it relates to other women, her role in the world? So you gave a message explaining that helpmate suitable, that Ezer Konegdo role. And so I want to know if you would talk a little bit about what the connotations underlying that phrase really mean. Yeah, I could talk all day about that. I know. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm always telling my students the Bible is one story. It's best read and understood from beginning to end. And when you look at the book of Genesis and the creation narrative, we know that the Bible wasn't the only creation story being written and told at that time. So it sits alongside Babylonian creation stories, Mesopotamian creation stories, and not to nerd out too much because I am a nerd and I will nerd out (laughs) on you in a heartbeat. But the reason I raise that point is the Bible is the only creation story 
in the Near East that portrays the creation of woman in a way that is positive, affirming, and powerful. And in Genesis 2.18, God uses his first two words to describe woman, what we are, what we're meant to be, how we're being invited to show up in our lives, in our space, how we're meant to hold our space in the earth, wherever you live, whatever your family, whatever your story. And in Genesis 2.18, God's talking to Adam and he says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And oftentimes in the West, we've heard that as a helpmate. Mm-hmm. or a help meet. Right. But the two Hebrew words there, which the Old Testament's originally penned in from a Semitic Middle Eastern people, it's the words Ezra Konegdo. And just to briefly break those down, because as women, we have to understand these two words because God has spoken. Mm-hmm. about who we are yeah. and who we're meant to be. This is not elusive. This is not mystery. In Genesis chapter 2, God leads out with who we are in the story. And so that first word, Ezer, it's translated as helper. Mm-hmm. And I love using this example because as a Western people, a helper is often secondary. Sure, There's a primary, mm-hmm. and then the helper is there to help the, assistant. the primary, yeah. the assistant. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. But that is not what Ezer means mm-hmm. in Hebrew. Now, it does carry the meaning of helper, but it is a strong word. And it carries the idea of helping, aiding, strengthening another in a way that they cannot do for themselves. Mm-hmm. And where it gets just gospel gorgeous because Ezer is the first word that God uses to describe woman. And what's beautiful about it is when you read the rest of the Bible, the other places where we see this word Ezer, it's a word that God uses to describe himself with Israel. That's powerful. And would we (laughs) ever say that God was secondary to Israel? No. <laughs> or that he was just a little helpmeet, a little helper. An assistant. An assistant <laughs> right. to Israel. We no. would never say no, that. No, and no. so what's so powerful, and I think God's being intentional with it, is his first word in the Bible mm-hmm. to describe woman is a word he uses to describe himself. Wow. And wow. when in the Bible— God is being an Ezer to Israel. He's usually being a warrior on her behalf. It is a strong, almost military type of a help. It's not just, oh, I'll help you with your taxes and I'll help you garden (laughs) and cook your food. No, it is, I will contend. There's something about women. We are here to contend, to contend for the way of the living God and against the enemy. And so that's that first word, Ezer, and there's just such a lifting in it. And that next word, helper suitable, it's the Hebrew word konegdo. And I love this word because then I'm going to nerd out on you for a second. Here's the (laughs) professor in me coming out. But that word connecto, we call it a hapax legomena. And all that (laughs) means means is that it that word is only found in the Bible in that one instance. It's the only time it's there. So it makes it interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's not another connecto that we see in scripture. So the first word God uses, Ezer is a word he uses to describe himself with Israel. The second word is a word that's not found in the Bible anywhere else. And konegdo carries this idea of standing opposite someone, facing them, not letting them go or do just as they want to do. And so it's very much an ezer is side by side with you, horizontal and mutual, 
-hmm. not vertical. Mm -hmm. We're not under anyone. And connecto means we also stand face-to-face in our relationships. So an Ezer Connecto, a helper suitable, is somebody who's going to walk with you side by side, stand face to face with you, not just letting you go the way that you want to go, contending for the way of the living God in the earth and contending against the enemy. Wow. And I think the thing that's so fascinating to me, though, is how did this get so distorted? Because what you're describing is a very close complementary type of relationship where not one or the other has everything, that they're meant to fill each other's gaps absolutely, and to walk alongside each other and to even kind of spur each other on by challenging each other. That's exactly right. But as we look at, you know, just through biblical history and even in the world now, this concept of women's role has been changed. So how do you think that we got there? And what was it? What was that context like, really, when Jesus was walking the earth? Yeah, well, it starts in Genesis 3. I mean, the Ezra Konegdo is a horizontal relationship, that side-by-side and face-to-face. When the fall happens in Genesis 3, shalom gets shattered. And when God is dealing out the ramifications of the fall, there's a line where he says, and woman shall seek to like rule over her husband and yeah. he shall rule over her. The idea is that anybody ruling over anybody is a product of the fall. Mm. Wow, that's so good. It's not just woman seeking to rule over man. Man ruling over woman does not exist in Genesis 1 and 2. It enters the story through sin, and it is a product of sin because we're meant for mutual horizontal relationships. So the fall happens. Abundance gives way to scarcity. Now we have the rise of patriarchy because now we're in a world of scarcity where I've got to fight you to get it, fight you to keep it, fight you, subdue you put you under me. And so now we have the beginning of verticality and empire. No longer kingdom and mutuality. Mm -hmm. So it begins in Genesis 3. And what's beautiful is the rest of the story of the Bible is the living God bringing back mutuality, bringing back harmony, working that restoration, bringing things back to the Eden way Mm -hmm. that we see Mm -hmm. in Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve co-ruled. They are co-regents together as they're connecto side by side, face to face. So Jesus is born into a world 2,000 years ago, thousands of years past Genesis 3, where a woman has really lost her sense of honor um, and she has been anchored in shame. And so Jesus is birthed into, he incarnates into this world. And the question's going to become, does he agree with that? Mm-hmm. You know, does he come on the scene? And yeah. he's like, yeah, that's about right. Woman needs to be in the corner. Woman needs to be under man. Woman needs to be subdued, like all of these different things. Or does he start working the restoration of her honor and the abundance of shalom given back to her? And story after story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over and over again, we know exactly what Jesus thought about women mm-hmm. um, because in every word and deed, he is lifting women out of shame, restoring their sense of honor that was lost and sending them away in shalom. You know, I have to just say, because I'm a nerd, but, you know, Jesus is Jewish and he grew up in a Jewish home and in a Jewish world. And women have a very high history in Judaism. When you think about Sabbath or Shabbat, as they call it, Mm -hmm. sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, there's only one member of the family who's allowed to light the Shabbat candles 
which is one of the highest honors in all of Judaism. And in a world of patriarchy, we would just assume it's the dad, it's the pater, it's the father, but it's the mother. Hmm. Only the mother, the matriarch, is allowed to light the Sabbath candles. Hmm. And so I raise that now because we envision Jesus growing up in a world where every Friday night his mother Mary lit the Shabbat candles to welcome the Sabbath into their home like a bride. And so Jesus is growing up with this sense of woman, seeing in his world how she's lost that place of honor. Um, And he seeks to restore it in word and deed. It's beautiful. And he's adamant about it too. Yeah. So go into that in a little more detail because in your study, Jesus and Women, talk about how Jesus did bring honor in all these interactions and ones that we often kind of get them wrong. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but what were the methods? What was he trying to do in these interactions that he was having with women? Yeah, so, you know, the Middle East, both then and now, it's an honor-shame world. And so the honorable are on top, the shamed are on the bottom. And so woman is oriented at the bottom when Jesus comes into the world. And so in all of the stories that we have throughout the four gospels and every interaction that Jesus has with a woman, he's essentially bringing two things into her life, justice and righteousness, mishpat and zedekah. And biblical justice, it's defined is when the honorable reaches down to the shameful, lifts them out of their shame, and restores their honor. And so the question becomes, does woman in Jesus's world need a little bit of justice, or does she need a lot of justice? She needs a lot. And so the question is, how much justice will Jesus bring? How much lifting up is in him, in his heart for woman and for women? And that second word, zedekah, it's the Hebrew word for righteousness, which we usually think of being clean. But Zedekah also means generous or generosity in their world. And so we see Jesus bringing Mishpat and Zedekah, what kind of a justice, a generous justice. He reaches all the way down to the bottom, takes hold of woman, lifts her out of her shame, restores her honor, and sends her forward in shalom remade, redesigned, reimagined into that Ezra Konegdo function and role that she was originally called to in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Wow. You know, and when you think about just these interactions that we've seen in the Bible, we do see that Jesus has a particular approach towards women, a particular, I don't know if favoritism is quite the right word, but he's gentle in these interactions, even in the case where there may be sin that's being called into question. And I feel like so many times, many of us grow up missing that commentary, missing that part of really how he was trying to restore this woman and actually in many cases trying to give her a place of honor or give her a role or a duty that would have been strange to give to a woman. So as far as some of these accounts, can you help us to re-understand or reframe our understanding rather of stories, for example, like example like the woman with the issue of blood or the woman at the well, these kind of things, how Jesus was doing that for these women in these stories. Yeah, I mean, when we look at Jesus and his historical first century world, the two things that seem to be the most unusual about him as a rabbi of Israel, two things that really makes him other than, different from, you know, one of these kids is doing his own thing kind of in that world, are his table fellowship practices because he eats with tax collectors and sinners, and holy rabbis of Israel didn't do that. Mm -hmm. 
and his ministry to and affiliation with women. So these are two biggies for Jesus. It is part of why I say he's adamant about it. So in Matthew 9, for example, we have this woman who's had an issue of blood for 12 years. And in Judaism, that renders her perpetually unclean, which means regardless of her marital status, her familial status, whatever, she's not been touched in 12 years. She has not had physical touch because in Jesus's world of Judaism, everything is about clean and unclean. And if you're clean, you don't want to touch unclean because then you become unclean. Jesus shows up and radically reverses that because he who was clean was never afraid to touch unclean because when he touched unclean, he made unclean clean. Mm -hmm. And so he is bringing this restoration. And so Matthew 9 is this very public moment. People are around. Jesus is there. And this woman with the issue of blood, you know, we just see her courage in this moment of pushing through the crowd, you know, and grabbing the corner of Jesus's tallit or his prayer shawl. And, you know, him feeling that power come out of him and turning around. I mean, he's the one that decides to make it a moment. He's the one that decides to make it an issue. Mm -hmm. He's like, who just touched me? He mm -hmm. wants to know. And then it's her. And what's beautiful is he says to her, take heart, daughter. And to be in a public moment with a woman with an issue of blood, touching him, a holy rabbi of Israel, healing her, restoring that sense of honor for her and cleanness and sending her away. What's so beautiful to me about it is it doesn't shake him at all. It's almost like the most normal thing in the world. Rabbis are not calling women daughter, right. not in that world. Yeah. This this affiliation, this proximity, this closeness. He doesn't say, you lady, <laughs> right? You know, or <laughs> what's your name, you woman. He's like, no, take heart, daughter. It's yeah. like he's bringing her in. You can be close to me. You can touch me. It's okay. Um, and this is radical, in Jesus's world. And the reason I love that it's such a public moment is guaranteed. I mean, I wasn't there. I wasn't alive 2,000 years ago, but every single person that was in that moment was talking about that at dinner that night yeah. because it was so revolutionary and so radical. And so this idea that Jesus is so comfortable with our wound, with our brokenness, with our flaws. It doesn't bother him. He's not afraid of us. We've not fallen so far that we're outside of Mishpat and Zedekah. Mm -hmm. You know, because to deal with something for 12 years, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I just got over COVID. Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> I right. can't imagine having COVID <laughs> for 12 years, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so we just see his ease, the ease with which he included the feminine and sought to lift and to restore and just unafraid, you know, it's entirely liberating because the worst parts of us are the parts we tend to hide not only from other people, but from God. Mm -hmm. And right. to read the Bible and to have an honest understanding of what it's actually saying about who the living God is and who Jesus is, it's that they don't mind the brokenness. They know that we are living in a fallen world mm -hmm. that deals its blows. I mean, life punches us all in the throat. Yeah. And it just depends on how has it punched you in the throat? What have you lost? What have you been through? What's your story? What's your trauma? What's come against you? And the living God and Jesus know that. And so, you know, you kind of said, I don't know if it's favoritism, but Jesus, man, Jesus is for the underdog. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there's a guy named Simeon 
when Jesus is born, when Joseph and Mary are carrying Jesus up the steps at the temple at, when he's 40 days old to dedicate him to the living God. And Simeon prophesies about Jesus. I mean, he's 40 days old. He's a baby. And Simeon says, this child is going to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. Mm. In other words, he's going to be divisive. Mm-hmm. So who is it that gets raised? It's people anchored in shame. Yeah. Who is it that's going to fall? The proud. Mm -hmm. And so it was amazing how Jesus is teaching and doing these things, but depending on who you are in relation to him, he's either good news in your life or he's very bad news in your life. Yeah. (laughs) And if you're on the margins, if you're the oppressed, if you're anchored in shame, Jesus is very good news for you. I love the point that you made too, that Jesus was not afraid to make a spectacle of these things. No doubt. He very could have, he very well could have just kept walking. No doubt. Let that power go right out. But he wanted her to know that she was seen. He wanted everyone else to know that she was seen. So the fact that even he gave this special honor to a woman in having that kind of familial recognition was big. And then for her to have it in front of all of these people would have just been a complete like jaw-dropping moment for these people. So much so that we are now reading this in the Bible. I don't think it drops our jaw quite the same way unless we fully understand that context, though. Oh, man. Though. Yeah. Everybody there is freaking out yeah. <laughs> in these moments. And Jesus lives out loud. Yeah. You know, He very much lives out loud. Yeah. Now, talk a little bit more, too, about marginalized people. So there's like the woman at the well, for example, that oftentimes when I've heard this story, it is about, well, she was kind of a promiscuous woman and, you know, she was doing the wrong thing and Jesus called her out and all that kind of stuff. But you have such a different approach to the way that we should really fully understand this story. So help us understand that. Well, I mean, just to dive in feet first, there's absolutely no way that's what that story is saying in Jesus's first century world. Um, you know, if you go back 2,000 years, divorce and marriage laws, um, at that time, divorce was the exclusive right of the male. Only men could divorce their wives. Wives did not even have a legal avenue with which to divorce their husbands. And so when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and he says, go call your husband, and she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands and the guy you now live with, you know, you're essentially just living with him. We've always thought from a Western perspective that Jesus is calling out her sin. Mm -hmm. But in that world, there's no way she's a man-eater. There's no way she's lascivious. There's no way she's ran through five men because if she had, they would have stoned her. We have the story of the woman caught in adultery, John chapter eight. So there's no way. And so what we have is a woman who's been ran through five times. Mm -hmm. She has been left desolate, abandoned, orphaned by five different men. So she has been anchored in shame five times over, obviously without any issue of adultery or she would be dead. So when Jesus says, go call your husband, he's not naming her sin. He's naming her shame. Mm -hmm. He's naming the thing in her story that has so lowered her, that has marginalized her even from within her own village and her own community. And what's so beautiful about that story is from the very moment that he says that to her, he starts lifting her. You can literally go read through that story. Rabbis didn't talk about theology with women Mm -hmm. in that world. They didn't really talk with women in that world. So they're at the heat of the day. Everybody can see it. Public moment at the village well. And he starts talking theology with her. 
you know, and by the end of the story, she's the missionary to her entire village, the first one in the Gospel of John that he ever explicitly reveals that he's the Messiah. You know, you can only do a thing one time, one time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, the first time can only be one time. Right. And so for all of human history, she'll always be the one that carries that honor of being the first one that Jesus explicitly told. And so, you know, sometimes we read these stories because we don't understand their culture and we don't understand their world. And it's a completely different story in the Bible if Jesus isn't calling out her sin. Yeah. It's yeah. a completely different story if he's dealing with her shame. I think the thing I love about that too is the fact that she says, you know, he is he said everything about me. He knows everything about me and it shows how much we may even be trying to hide those things from Jesus, but he knows that they're there. For sure. And so by just gently laying the cards all out on the table, it's saying, hey, I see this stuff, but I want to draw you close That's to right. me. Let's talk some more, you yes. know? And in doing that, you you just get a sense of this exuberance that does come, though, when she kind of is released and runs back, yes. and, you know, that kind of thing. That the shame is being peeled off, not just in her context in her village and where she lives, but it's being peeled off of her just that right. she doesn't have to hide behind it to anybody anymore. Right. It's not the thing that defines her. Yeah. Um, and scripture yeah. doesn't say it, but to understand that world, you know, Jesus lives up in the Galilee and Jerusalem is down in Judea. So at least three times a year, he's traveling through Samaria to go down to Jerusalem to the temple. And while the text doesn't say it, hospitality is so huge in that world, it is very likely that from that moment on, every time he and his disciples came through that village, going down to Jerusalem or coming back up to Galilee, they probably stayed with them. Mm -hmm. So we envision him and this woman becoming friends. We envision him and his Jewish disciples spending time with the Samaritans in this village. So we have to keep that in mind because I think we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be chapters of that story mm. that were lived beyond, yeah. not just that moment. Right. There's no reason for us to believe that's the only time he ever saw her. Sure. Yeah, that this could be a relational thing that for sure. extended over time. Which is the way he engages with us, right? right. It's not like I'm going to drop in this one little That's interaction right. and then off I go. That's right. That's really great. Yeah. I'd like to take a short break from our conversation to mention our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is Christian counseling that is available on the go. And it works through an app where you are able to schedule video sessions or just chat with your counselor throughout the course of the week. And I found that having the combination of Christian teaching and counseling together was so encouraging and so healing for me. If you have been considering Christian counseling and you would like to give Faithful Counseling a try, you can get 10% off of your first month by going to getfaithful.com forward slash single mom. So as far as when it comes to issues specifically and touch a little bit on divorce and things like that. Jesus also was challenging some of the men at this time about the practices and the things that they were doing and advocating for the outcast and divorced women or women who were being divorced, especially against their will and things like that. So can you talk a little bit as well about how Jesus approached those subjects? Because for women who are listening, this is something that is difficult even in the modern age to walk through this issue with sometimes not receiving a lot of guidance or support from church leaders or pastors or whomever it might be. Yeah, so I'm going to take a little bit of time with this yeah. uh, because it's important. And we know 
You know, this is another one of those things that to know Jesus in his world, we know some of these things. And so it's kind of back to the Samaritan woman. In Jesus's world, men had the exclusive legal right of divorce. And one generation before Jesus, there were two famous rabbis of Israel, famous in Jerusalem. You had Hillel and you had Shammai. Now, just stay with me quickly. I'm not going to like push you to sleep here because Jesus is going to speak into these things. Hillel was kind of a spirit of the law kind of a guy. And he went on record saying a man can divorce his wife for any reason. If she burns the bread, Mm -hmm. if she has a bad day, I mean, for anything. Shammai, on the other hand, or house Shammai, he's like a strict letter of the law kind of a guy. And he said, only in the case of adultery can a man divorce his wife. So Jesus is born into a world of Hillel and Shammai. So you've got these men capriciously divorcing their wives over anything and everything because she burns the bread, because she has a disposition that he doesn't like. Are you kidding me? We've all had a bad day. We've all had moments when, you know. Mm -hmm. And so women are being easily, capriciously abandoned by the husbands in their lives. And so in Matthew chapter 19, famous passage about divorce in the Gospels, the Pharisees ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man, not for a person, Mm -hmm. for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? What are they asking Jesus? They're asking, do you side with Hillel Mm -hmm. or do you side with Shammai? Mm -hmm. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason or can he only divorce her for adultery? And Jesus, when he gives his rabbinic ruling here, he is contending for women. This is just as much a gender thing Mm -hmm. as it is a marriage and divorce thing because of the inequity in marriage and divorce at that time. And so when Jesus says it is only lawful for a man to divorce his wife in the case of adultery, he sides with Shammai Mm -hmm. and he is protecting women who are being divorced by their husbands because they're burning the bread or something like that. He's standing up for women and protecting them within that family thing. And so, you know, back to the Samaritan woman, he's talking with a woman who's been divorced five times, Mm -hmm. not even just once, but left open, left liable. So we see Jesus with divorced women and just with the issue of divorce, again, contending for the underdog, Mm -hmm. contending for the oppressed, contending for the one who has no legal right or voice in these matters, he's being a voice for her and for them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we talk about divorce, it's had a stigma in every generation Mm -hmm. and in every time, and it has one still to this day. And sadly, in the church, the stigma of the world has found its way in. Mm -hmm. Because I think if we are trying to be like Christ, we will interact softly, kindly, gently with a restorative nature, a reparative kind of a of an essence when we're walking with divorced people in the church. You know, and man, while we're at it, let me just say this. In Malachi, I'm amazed at how we just pull verses out mm-hmm. of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And when God says, you know, I hate divorce, yeah. it's the same reason that he hates sin. God doesn't hate sin because we broke a rule. God hates sin because sin breaks us. Mm-hmm. God hates divorce because it breaks us. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it breaks us down and it leaves us needing repair and renewal and restoration. But the Bible doesn't say that God hates people who've experienced divorce. And yeah. he certainly understands 
that it happens. In fact, I'll even go one further. This freaks people out. God, God knows divorce. Jeremiah. God knows God yeah. has been through yeah. a divorce. Mm-hmm. Dang. <laughs> Christy, I'm so glad you brought that up because Man. I have I have posted blogs about this. And I feel sometimes like I am on like tiptoeing the edge of what people are really comfortable talking about when sure. it comes to divorce. And you are blowing this Blow right over. He, know, he knows the pain yeah. of rejection. Israel, the covenantal yeah. bride. Yeah rejected him. He knows what it is to be left. He knows what it is to have his lover choose other lovers, the idols of the Near Eastern world. He knows it. So when we really look at this, you know, is divorce, is sickness, is death, all these things, it wasn't the way of Eden. But rather than judging it, Mm -hmm. the living God seeks to step into these things to bring restoration, renewal, repair, redemption, resurrection. Mm -hmm. And so this should be our posture. Yeah. You know, we can sit with people and be in their sadness and be in their story. Because I think that's how Jesus sat with that woman at the well in her sadness, in her story. The woman with the issue of blood, he's letting her touch him. I mean, you go on and on with the stories. It's what I mean when I say, like, Jesus is just comfortable in our mess. Yeah. It just doesn't bother him. He knows who he is. Mm -hmm. He Mm -hmm. knows what he can bring in our lives when we let him. Well, and I think, so if we like go a little bit back to what you said, as far as Jesus addressing these men who are saying, well, can I divorce her for this? Or can I divorce yeah. her for that? thing I also come to understand is that just before that is where he's had the discussion about where looking at someone with lust in your eye is the same as adultery. So he's almost even turning the table to say, you actually, if these women had the ability to divorce you, you are so rampant in your sin and thinking like, oh, if I just look at her, it's okay. And that... If the tables were turned, actually, you guys would be in trouble. Where we sometimes get it wrong is like that he's calling out these women, right? But he really is calling out these men and, and their their lack of justice in the way that they are approaching their marriages, that they are kind of seeing these women as disposable and that kind of stuff. And that in the doing of this, they're objectifying these women. And Jesus came to step into these places saying, you are manipulating the rules, you're manipulating the law, you're manipulating what has been said to feed your own purposes. And I'm here to tell you, I see it. Yeah, it's back to (laughs) Simeon's prophecy. He's going to cause the rise and the fall of many in Israel. I really appreciate, though, you touching on those points because it is something that I get letters from women. They're not letters, emails. (laughs) Emails, DMs. Yeah. Um, But saying, Is there a good, solid teaching on some of these subjects? Because a lot of times when women are trying to seek counsel on this, there's there's a a hesitation about anything that would say like divorce is okay or, you know, that kind of stuff, even in context where we know biblically that it is okay. So for a woman who is kind of not sure about her circumstance or anything like that. Are there any resources specifically that you know of or could point to that might be helpful in gaining more understanding about Jesus's approach to subjects like this? I mean, Jesus and women with Lifeway, (laughs) which I'm smiling right now because that's the study that I put out with Lifeway. But, you know, it's, uh, let's take another example just quickly. Paul and women. 
the whole, like, can women teach in the church? What's going on? Because I'm just going to say right now, I go to the church where Chrissy teaches and it's amazing. (laughs) So, (laughs) And, you know, it's, so when we're talking about the issue of women in the church, if we only go to those two passages of Paul, it's like looking to the Bible about marriage, but only looking at the divorce verses. Yeah. It's, it's not looking at the whole story. And so what I would say, the reason I'm saying tongue-in-cheek, the Jesus and Women series would be amazing is Jesus is consistent throughout all issues and who he is in relation to women really shows up. I mean, he's not schizophrenic. He's very consistent. Yeah. And so it's, it's not even always helpful you know, to give a resource just on marriage and divorce and maybe mm-hmm. remarriage. Good, yeah. No, we want to know the story of the Bible. Yeah. We want to understand Jesus in, in the in the breadth of who he is and how he related to women. And within that, we see his heart when it comes to divorce. Yeah. And so one of the things that we do in the West all the time as we pick and choose the verses that we just develop all these theologies around rather than what is the sum total of the story saying about any particular issue. Mm -hmm. So that kind of doesn't answer your question, but it kind of does answer your question. Because I would say for any women out there that you're in a situation, you don't know what to do, the basic principles of just making sure that you are bathed in prayer, that your heart is given to the living God, that you're open to what He's saying, to seeking wise counsel. I am a huge proponent of counseling. Mm -hmm. Um, Me too. You know, the church has its place for sure. Counseling has its place for sure. Mm -hmm. And being able to sit down with counselors who have put more time and work into issues of domestic abuse, power and control issues, trauma, things like that, Mm -hmm. than what the average pastor is even equipped to give you. And so it's like if I found out I had cancer, I'm not going to my dentist. Right. I'm going to an oncologist. Yeah, right. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you want to hear what your pastor has to say, but sometimes your pastor doesn't know you, yeah. doesn't know your story. Yeah. You know, we go to a church with 4,000 people. Right. I mean, I don't know everybody <laughs> right, right, there, right. you know? And so I think counseling and seeking out like Christian professional help that, that's mm-hmm. done the work that can help walk you through, help you process, help yeah. you think it through um, is really good. That's great. Yeah. And actually, I'm feeling challenged now, too, because as I said, there are some blog posts I've written about this, but I feel like maybe there's some more I need to write then. <laughs> because what happened through to me as I stepped through my divorce journey was I just plowed back into the Bible. I needed to know what did God say about me? What did He say about my circumstance? And the more I read start to finish, you can see that whole story as it unravels that absolutely God is a God of justice, He's a God of mercy, and He's a God of love. And all of the things that I was going through were to show me those things, as painful as they were. But I could see, and in just prayer time and hearing His voice, I could see what He said. And it mattered more to me that I discovered it that way than any book that I probably could have read on the subject. So I appreciate that. As we are wrapping our conversation up, at the end of every interview, I ask the guests the same question. Okay. And it's, if you had just one thing that you would want a single mom to know, what would it be? Oh, man. Uh, that you're the apple of God's eye. 
You know, there's a passage in Deuteronomy where it says that he carried Israel on eagles' wings and tended to her like the apple of his eye. And that's a Jewish idiom. That's, we, that's made its way into our vernacular. Mm-hmm. We talk about that, apple of the eye, but yeah. it's Jewish. It's from the Hebrews. Thank you to the Jews. And it's an idiom that literally means little man in the eye. And it carries the idea of the living God being so close to us face to face that he can see his reflection in the pupil of our eye. Wow. It's about proximity. Mm, It's about closeness. It's how close does God come? It is not just that he's here. Like the gods of antiquity, they were up there and out there. Where is the living God? He is so close to us face to face that he can see his reflection Mm. in the pupil of our eye. So I would say to just every woman out there, you are the apple of his eye. He not only sees, he's face to face with you and so close, he can see his reflection. He can see his own reflection in your eye. He knows, he sees, he's not afraid, he's not backing up, he's not leaving, he's not forsaking, he's not moving away, he's moving close, he's moving toward to bring Mishpat, to bring justice, to bring Zedekah, to bring righteousness, to lift you out of your shame, restore your honor, and send you forth in shalom. That is just Beautiful. <laughs> That's gospel beautiful. gorgeous. Oh, thank you, Christy. It's gospel gorgeous. So as listeners are maybe thinking like, okay, I gotta I gotta get more of this. How can they connect with you and just stay in touch with the things that you're doing? Yeah, the best way would just be to visit our website. It's christymcclellan.com. They can subscribe for free and they'll start receiving devotions and different things that I'm learning and reading, info on series, trips, places I'm teaching. Um, we're on Twitter and Instagram as well. Instagram is at Christy McClellan. Twitter's the reverse, at McClellan Christy. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's a pleasure. You know, we need to talk about who God is, mm-hmm. you know, as Christians. Um, I think sometimes we read the Bible and ask, what does it teach me about me? In the Middle East, they read the Bible and ask, what does it teach me about God? Mm-hmm. And if we read the Bible and focus on what it's teaching us about who God is, we will be blown away. He's better than we ever knew. That's amazing. And I will have links to all of that in the show notes so that people can find you very easily. But thank I just you. want to thank you so much Man, thank for Thank you being for having today. me. Thanks. It's been great. Yeah. Thank you so much. It has been such a treat getting to learn more about God through Christy's teachings. And I just pray that something that you heard today would just boost your spirits and give you such a greater, better sense of how much God loves you. As we wrap up today's episode, I do want to point out a couple of resources available in the show notes. The first is our private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Going through the issues and things that we're dealing with as single moms in community is so valuable. And so if you'd like to join the Facebook group, all you have to do is search for Agape Moms on Facebook at Agape Moms, and then click on the groups tab there and submit a request to join the group. Likewise, if you would like to follow along with Agape Moms on Instagram, you can search for us at Agape Moms. Additionally, I now have a weekly video guided scripture meditation available for every episode of the podcast. And if you subscribe to the Agape Moms YouTube channel, you will receive notifications when those videos become available. And it's just a great way to start off your day with some encouragement from God's word and apply some of the things that we're learning here on the podcast. 
I also want to thank you for your subscriptions, your rankings, your reviews. It's so encouraging to me to see what God is doing in your life and to see Him on the move, but it also helps other women to be drawn in to just what God has for them here as well. And as you move through the rest of your day or your evening, I just pray that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.